We are starting a new series tonight, and I'm stoked because this is a book that I have never preached before, and I'm looking forward to preaching through it, and it's the book of Galatians. Uh, Galatians is written by who? Paul. Yes, we can talk. I don't know, I don't know what Pastor Rod likes to do aside from tell lies about me um, and stories about me when I'm around, but I don't know if he likes you guys to talk. I'm okay with you guys giving me some feedback here. We can, we can do this. It's all right. So Galatians was written by... Paul, right? And Paul wrote a lot in the New Testament, didn't he? In fact, he wrote the majority of what we have in the New Testament, maybe outside of the Gospels when you consider how long the Gospels are when you put them together. But all the letters, I mean, Paul wrote so many of those, didn't he? Galatians is unique because Galatians is one of Paul's most passionate letters that he wrote. So Paul gets almost borderline angry in this letter. And the reason why he does is because the gospel has come under fire with this church in the region of Galatia. Now, when you're thinking about Galatia, Galatia wasn't a city. It was a region. It was a territory. And there were cities in Galatia. So if you know where Turkey is today, modern-day Turkey, um, just north of Israel, uh, that's kind of where everything is, is happening in this letter to the Galatians. It was a, a key stop on Paul's missionary journeys. Lydia, uh, Derby and Lystra were two of the, the cities there in the southern region of Galatia that Paul and Barnabas stopped on on their first missionary journey, and then Paul stopped there again on his third missionary journey. And so Paul knows these people and knows these churches. And so he's writing this letter not just to necessarily one church, but to a group of churches and a group of believers in this region called Galatia. But Paul loved them, and the problem was is he was writing because there were people that had come into the church that wanted to distort and twist and pervert the gospel. So Paul's not going to have that. Paul's getting upset. Paul's getting righteously indignant, angry even, over the fact that these people want to pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he writes this letter, and that's the one that we're going to study. And the reason why I'm so excited about this is because this letter is all about the true gospel. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and what he did, and that we're not here to, to bring anything to the table with that. We're not here to add to that. We're not here to help Jesus, but we're here to trust Jesus and then respond to Jesus. And that's what Galatians is all about. Pick up in verse one. Let's read the first five verses together. It says this. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches, there's the plural there, churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's as far as we're going to go tonight. Paul's introducing himself, which is how a lot of the, the old letters would go. You, you wouldn't sign it at the end. Like we say, hey, dear so-and-so, and then at the end we sign it off and write our name at the end of the letter. Well, the way it works here is they said, look, here's who's writing the letter at the beginning. And so Paul introduces himself, and he says, Paul and what? What's the next word? An apostle, Right? An apostle was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ sent with a message by Jesus Christ. So when we're thinking about an apostle the way that Paul is talking about it, there are no more living apostles today. So sometimes you'll see in some of these churches that it's pastored by apostle so-and-so. That's not an apostle the way that Paul's talking about being an apostle. They may claim to be that, but that's not true because the, the qualifications for an apostle was you were an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus and that you were personally commissioned by him, sent by him with a message. So Paul had that happen, right? 
on the road to Damascus. He was carrying the letters. He was ready to go and imprison Christians, persecute the church. And Jesus shows up and literally kicks him off his donkey. And there's this blinding light. And his traveling companions are hiding behind a rock because they're terrified of what go, what's going on. And Paul encounters the resurrected Jesus, doesn't he? And Jesus says to, to Paul, Saul at the time, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting me, right? Well, Saul was persecuting the church. But Jesus says, no, you're persecuting my bride, so you're persecuting me. And so Paul, Saul at the time is, is confronted by Jesus, eyewitness account. And then Jesus says to him, look, I'm, I'm going to send you and I'm going to show you how much you're going to actually have to, to suffer for my name. But I'm going to send you to be my witness, my messenger. And so Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, not from men nor through man. So again, Paul's writing a letter to combat false teaching. He's writing a letter and he wants there to be a sense of authority about this letter. He wants the people that are receiving this letter and reading this letter to go, okay, yeah, this guy has the right to correct our false doctrine. This guy has the right to tell us the way it should be. And so we see that in his title as an apostle, but then we also see that in this next statement that he makes when he says, look, I wasn't sent by men. It's not like this group of guys huddled together and we're like, who should we send? And, and uh, yeah, let's, let's do, yeah, let's do Saul. Saul's a good candidate for that. But he says, no, I was actually set apart through, he says, Jesus Christ and God the Father. Again, reminding them, this is a divine commission that Paul has. That he is sent with divine authority by God the Father. Who, oh, by the way, he's just throwing this in there for free. Who raised Jesus from the dead and... If that's not enough, you need to know that I'm not alone. Because he says, and, and I'm also writing with all the brothers who are with me. With everybody else who agrees with what I'm about to write to you. And so Paul's introducing himself here. He's laying out his authority. He's laying out the, the, the reason why they should listen to him. That he's sent not by men, not by some human coalition, but by God himself. The God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He's the one that's sending Paul. He's the one that's sending the apostle to this church. And then he gives this greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common greeting in these letters, a common greeting from Paul. In fact, in Romans, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in Galatians here, in Ephesians, in Philippians, in Colossians, in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and in Philemon, Paul says the same thing. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think here with the, the church in Galatia, this had a, a little double-edged meaning to it. Because the, the heresy that was threatening the, the believers there was this idea that they could add to the works that Jesus had done. This idea that they had to be good enough, that they had to keep the law. In fact, there was a group called the Judaizers who were there in the church in Galatia. And they were telling the Christians there, you know what? It's not enough for you to believe in this whole salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You need to actually go back to the Old Testament law and you need to keep the, the Old Testament law. And specifically, they were telling the believers there that they needed to be circumcised in keeping the Old Testament law because that was the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. And if you want to be sons of Abraham, then you need to do this. Well, Paul's going to address that later. So Paul's writing to them and he gives this greeting, grace to you. Can you sense the, the double-edged thrust there from Paul's opening greeting there to the, the, the readers of this letter? Remember, it's about what? It's about grace. It's not about works. It's not about you meriting this. It's not about you earning this. It's about grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does peace come? But from what? Grace. So Saul, Paul, at this time, is intentional with this opening to this letter. 
A lot of times we can read these epistles and we read them in our DBR and we're just kind of skimming over this and we're like, okay, yeah, let's just get past the greeting and get on to it. But Paul wrote every single greeting he wrote under the inspiration of what? The Holy Spirit, right? And so if this is inspired words from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, we should give them attention, yes? So Paul's writing for a purpose and writing this way for a purpose. And he's reminding them that, look, this is about grace. This is about peace. And oh, by the way, that grace and peace comes from God the Father through who? Jesus. Through Jesus. This series, if if nothing else, I want you to love Jesus more as a result of this series. I want you to walk away from these messages going, wow, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is my life. Jesus is my future. Jesus is my hope. And in fact, he's all that I have. You can have everything, but don't take Jesus. And the good news is, if you have Christ, he won't be taken away from you. So that's the first three verses. But then look at verse four, because now Paul's going to explain Jesus a little bit more for us. And that's where we're going to camp out for the rest of our time. This is a kind of a, a setting the table kind of message. We're talking about the gospel in the rest of this. So in verse 4, he says this, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Let's back up to the beginning of there, of verse 4 again. Jesus, who what? Gave himself. Gave himself. This is a a word, this word gave, that has a a sacrificial emphasis to it. See, sometimes you can have an an overflow of something. You can have like two sticks of gum and your friend's like, oh man, I wish I had gum. And you're like, it's all right, I'll I'll give you some gum. And it really doesn't cost you because you've got gum too, right? But with this, this is giving to the point of sacrifice. This is a a giving that, that costs and costs a lot because it says that he gave him what? For our sins. Romans 3.23 says what? For the wages of sin is death, right? Death. And that's why God the Father had to give Jesus the Son for our sins, because that's a death that you and I can't sufficiently die, because it's a death that goes beyond our physical death. It's a death that requires an eternity apart from the goodness of God, under the wrath of God, while we die every single moment of our lives, and yet we're never fully dead. We're never fully destroyed, right? It's this wrath of God that had to be paid, that had to be settled, and that's the wages of sin is death, and that's why it was necessary for God the Father to give us Jesus the Son for our sins. Elsewhere, Paul says in Titus 2.14, Titus 2.14 about Jesus, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Or Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or Mark 10, 45, from Jesus' own words. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. And so this idea that it was necessary for us to receive the gift of Jesus Christ for our sins, because our sins owed a debt that we can't pay, that we can't overcome. So you see, again, Paul's going after the false teaching here in Galatia because the, the Judaizers that were in there were like, hey, you, know, you need to do things to be acceptable to God. 
You need to obey the Old Testament law to be acceptable to God. And Paul's going, no, you can't do that. And that's why God the Father had to give Christ the Son. 1 Corinthians 15.3. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of what? First importance. The most important thing that you could understand. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. Was this a New Testament concept? Was this something that would have caught the Judaizers by surprise to go, man, what? There needs to be a payment for my sins? No, they should have understood that, right? In fact, there was an entire system in the Old Testament built around the idea of a transaction between man and God to atone for sin, and that was called the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? But more than that, 700 and some odd years before Jesus dies on the cross, you know who predicted his death is a guy named Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was, Jesus was, the servant was, pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this gift of Christ was necessary. But notice the way it's put here in verse 4. Who gave himself. Who's doing the giving in view of Galatians 1.4? Sunday school answer on three, one, two, three. Jesus, right? Jesus is giving himself. Did the father give? Yes, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But here Paul's saying, no, we're focused on Jesus and, and you need to understand that, that Jesus gave himself for your sins. That can only be explained through one word, and that word is love. Point number one tonight is this. Jesus died for you because he loves you. Jesus died for you because he loves you. And you may be thinking to yourself, man, this is pretty rudimentary, pretty fundamental. Yes, you're right, it is. In fact, you learn this from the very outset of your life. If you're raised in a Christian home, one of the first tunes that you learn is what? What song? Jesus loves me. This I know. What? For the Bible tells me so. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. He is strong when I am weak, right? We teach it to our kids. We, we, we teach that to them from the time before they can even understand who Jesus is or, or the concept. Why? Because we want them to know Jesus loves them. Did you guys know that that wasn't originally written as a children's song? In fact, that wasn't originally written as a song at all. It was a poem that was written to comfort the soldiers that were fighting in the Civil War while they were on the battlefield. While the battle was raging around them, while their lives were on the line, this was a poem that they would continually go back to. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. And it was a source of comfort to them. And really it's True, there's no more comforting thought than Jesus loves you. 
And it's not seen anywhere more clearly than in the fact that he gave himself for your sins and for my sins. Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, pick up in verse 6. If you can get there quickly, go ahead and go there. Otherwise, you can just listen. But Romans 5, 6, Paul's going to talk about this, and he's going to drive this point home for us here. He says this. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though maybe for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his love for us through what? Through Christ giving himself for our sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than this, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So it's this whole package that the, the death of Christ launches us into now, that, that you are saved, that you are redeemed, that you are reconciled, that you are now part of God's family, that you are now adopted, that you are now sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. And all that is an, an expression, in fact, the, the greatest expression of love. In fact, when you're thinking about earthly expressions of love, the greatest expression of love on earth between two people, biblically defined, should be what? The act of marriage, right? And when Paul, later in Ephesians chapter 5, is going to talk about marriage, and he's talking about husbands loving their wives, guess what he says? Husbands, love your wives as what? Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself for her. So you see, even there, Paul's going, look, if you want to understand even the, 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 the pinnacle of earthly love, you need to understand that Jesus died for you, that Jesus gave himself for you, that that's where we see love so clearly displayed. And so, yes, is it rudimentary? Is it fundamental? Is it basic that Jesus loves you? Absolutely. But we can't ever forget that. We can't ever forget that Jesus loves us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The verse right before that, 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was revealed, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You want to see love, look at the cross, is basically what John is saying. That's what Paul is saying. And that's what the Father is revealing through Jesus. See, because Jesus in giving himself for us, he paid that penalty that you and I can't pay. That chasm that exists between us and God because we are born guilty. We are born in Adam and we need the second Adam to overcome that. We need a Jesus' righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says at the cross, Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteousness. If he doesn't do that, I'm hopeless. I have to have Jesus. And see, these people were coming and they were telling the Galatians there, you know what? Yes, that's fine, you know, Jesus, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. Okay, yeah, that's fine and everything else, but let me also talk to you about Moses. Let me talk to you about Abraham. Let me talk to you about the law. Let me talk to you about what you should be doing. Let me talk to you about if you're not doing this, then you're, you're still at odds with God, that you're not part of God's people. If you don't have this, 
then you don't count, you don't qualify. Do you see why Paul's angry at this? Because it's basically looking at the cross of Christ, God's most clear and plain display of his love and going, yeah, that's cute, but thanks, that's not enough. I'll, I'll, I'll take it from here, God, thanks. And Paul's going, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me because when it comes to our justification, our reconciliation, our being made right with God, here's the reality. We can't, Jesus could, Jesus did, praise God. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, this sounds a little bit maybe like cosmic child abuse for God to kill his son for me to be right with him. But that's again why this is so important to see that this was Jesus willingly taking our place. In fact, Jesus says this in John 10, 18. John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Look, I have the authority, he says, to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, Galatians 1, 4, from this present evil age. That word deliver means to rescue. It means to, to snatch out of peril. It's used differently when, G, when Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, look, if your right eye causes you to sin, he says, tear it out. It's the same word. To, to tear away, to snatch away, to save from peril. And Jesus is here pictured by Paul as, as delivering us, snatching us out from this present evil age. I, I wonder as you look around this world, would you really consider this world to be a present evil age? Would you say, man, this world is evil, this world is, is wicked? And if you would say yes, I would say, well, to, to what degree would you say that? Because the Bible would say, really, there's nothing good in this world. That there's really nothing that we can point to and say, well, this is inherently good in the world. Do you look around this age, this world, and think about how you need rescuing from it? That you need to be delivered from it? And here's the thing, before Christ, we're not victims of this world, we're citizens of this world. We're not being victimized by the problem, we are the problem. But God in his mercy, God in his love, God in his grace reaches down and he snatches us out of this so that we can be saved out of the world system, out of the world of of murder and abortion and hatred and anger and glorification of sex and violence and all of this stuff. J Jesus, he snatches us out of that. God saves us by loving us and saves us from that. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a riptide. I haven't. I've only really been out in the ocean a couple times because God didn't give me gills, so I don't, I don't really want to. Plus, there's sharks. But I've heard about riptides, and I imagine if you were littler and you were caught in a riptide and you were being drugged out into the ocean and, and you couldn't get free, and yet someone came along and snatched you out of that riptide, that you would be pretty grateful to that person for the rest of your life, wouldn't you? Not only would you be grateful to them for the rest of your life, but you probably wouldn't ever forget that moment, would you? It would probably come up quite a lot in conversation. Every time you would go to the beach with somebody new, you'd be like, dude, did I tell you about when I got caught in the riptide and this guy saved me? You'd be thinking about that. It'd be on your mind. Every time that, that anniversary came along every year, you'd remember that day that you, you almost died, you almost got sucked out to the ocean and almost drowned, and yet this person snatched you out of the riptide and saved you. Guys, Jesus has delivered us from something far greater than that. Far greater than that. 
Do we think about that as much as we would somebody snatching us out of a riptide? Do we talk about that as much as we would somebody snatching us out of a riptide? Here's what Jesus did for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. It's not a good situation for us, like the rest of mankind. But then we come to verse 4, which says what? But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, that's far greater than you being saved physically from anything. What God did for you in Jesus, this display of Jesus' love for you, that he delivered you from this present evil age, that he rescued you from being a child of wrath and made you a child of God instead. That love should overwhelm us. That love should, should amaze us. That love should blow us away. And, and yet we, we just don't talk about it as much as we should. We don't tell people about it as much as we should. But it's this overwhelming, amazing love of God. Jesus, who gave himself, gave himself. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who, what, though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to. In other words, he wasn't up there going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to not be in the presence of the Father and the Spirit. I don't want to, to become a human being. I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be hot. I don't want to stub my toe. I don't, I don't want to die on the cross. That's what Paul is saying there. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, to say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going I'm to stay right here. But it says what? what? He, he emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of flesh, he humbled himself to the point of death, even what? Death on a cross. One of the most humiliating deaths that he could ever have died. Jesus did for you. Gave himself for our sins. To what? Deliver us from this present evil age. To snatch us out of this world and this world's system. But look what it says next. According to what? The will of our God and Father. According to the will, the purpose, the plan, the desire of our God and Father. So we focused on the fact that Jesus loved you enough to give himself, and now we're looking at the Father's love for you. That the Father loved you so much that it was part of his will, part of his plan, part of his sovereign outworking of everything to save you and to save me. Luke 22, verses 41 through 42. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22, 41 through 42. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he leaves behind some of his disciples, and he takes just a, a, a few of them. And he goes away, and he, he leaves a few of them in this one spot, and he says, hey, you guys stay here, and you pray, and I, I'm going to go do the same, but I need to just be alone right now, because he was on the eve of the cross. He knew what was waiting for him. And Jesus goes, it says about a stone's throw away in the text, and he kneels down and he prays. And he prays so desperately and so fervently. Luke records one instance of it. There's other recordings where it's, it's three times he prayed what I'm about to say here. And that is Jesus prayed this, Father, if it be your will, let what? Let this cup pass from me. In other words, 
Father, if there's any way that I don't have to go to the cross, if there's any way that I don't have to bear your wrath, if there's any other way that we can work salvation out for all of these people that you have chosen from before the foundation of the earth, Father, if there's any other way that I can avoid what I'm about to endure, let it be, please. But he says this, but not my will, but your will be done. Did the cross happen? Yes. So was the cross the Father's will? Yes. The cross was part of the will of the Father in order to save us. That he would put his son to death, that he would pour out his wrath on his son. But it wasn't just that it was his will because, oh no, oh man, Jesus, get over here. Look what Adam and Eve did. They just sinned and, oh, now what do we do? Let's get the Holy Spirit quick. We need a holy huddle really quick and we need to figure out what our game plan is from here. That's not what happened at all. From the moment that the Father said, let there be light, the cross was in view. How do we know this? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter is preaching. And Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That word foreknowledge means to know beforehand. I know that's mind-boggling, but it does. But it's set in the context of before time began. So again, before God even said, let there be light, the cross was in view. The cross was plan A, not plan B. Your deliverance through Jesus Christ, Jesus snatching you out of the system of this world, snatching you out of this present evil age, that was in view from eternity past at some point point outside of time, because God created time, which is just mind-boggling in and of itself, but at some point, the, the, the Trinity decided together that the cross was the way that they were going to manifest their glory the most clearly that the world could ever see. And that involves saving you. And that's why Paul says here in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father. But it's more than just that the cross was in view from a 30,000 foot view and from a massive numerical view when you think of all the people that are saved as a part of God's plan. But I want you to drill down to you because you were in view with the cross. That God wanted to save you. That it was his will to deliver you. That it was part of his sovereign plan and foreknowledge to send Jesus to snatch you out of this present evil age. I don't know if any of you guys like to fish. It's like something I want to do when I get older. I want to be that guy that can fish because I just think they're cool. I, I can't. I mean, if they're like, drop your line and you're going to catch a fish, then I can do that part. But sometimes when you're out fishing, you'll pull in a fish and you're, you catch it and you're like, yeah, that's fine, but that's not really what I'm going for or looking for. But it, because it's legal size, you'll catch it anyways. And you'll save it. You'll throw it in the bag. You'll throw it in the, the live bit tank that you've got or whatever they call those things. See, I need to, to bone up on my fishing terminology. But you'll save it. Why? Because you're like, well, it's better than nothing. So I guess I'll, I'll keep that. That's not the way that God went after you in salvation. The cross is not the lure and God hooks you and is like, oh man, Okay, well, I guess I'll save this one because I've got plenty more bait here and I'll throw the cross back in and I'll catch somebody else maybe. That's not how salvation works. 
God set his affections on you. He set his love on you. He set his mind on you to save you from before the foundations of the earth. Point number two tonight is this. The father gave the son for you because he loves you. Point number one, Jesus loves you. Point number two, the father loves you. And he gave the son for you because he loves you, right? That's, again, we, this is a familiar concept to us. John three sixteen. For God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But I want to drill this down for you a little bit more. Take your Bibles this time. I want everybody to go there. Ephesians chapter 1. Just turn right one book. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Here's what Paul says. Blessed. Now that word blessed there means praise. It's where we get our, our word eulogy. To speak well of someone, right? So Paul's saying, blessed be, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, listen to the language here, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When did God set his affection on you to save you? Before the foundation of the, of the, of the world, of the earth. He chose you. He wrote your name down in the book of life. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, notice there's our language there. In love, he, the father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ and daughters. According to the, here's the phrase, purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved So there we see that he predestined us, which means he purposed beforehand that we would be saved for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Love and will, they're connected by the Apostle Paul there again. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his what? Will. What's the mystery of his will? The gospel that you would be saved through faith in Jesus Christ according to his purpose. What's his purpose? That you would be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him... In Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's why the cross is not a lure. It's a declaration. And God is saying, it's finished. And he's saying, it's finished. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. You're saved. It's done. I decided this in eternity past. The cross is the the sealing of it and your faith and repentance is the realization of that. But that was set in motion way, 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 way before even the foundations of the world came to be. Why? Because God loves you. Because the Father loves you. Because in saving you, 
and showing you his love for you. He's glorifying himself through you and through your salvation. When God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set about the plan of redemption through the cross, you were in view. Revelation 13, 7 through 8. Revelation 13, 7 through 8. This is a negative, but, but I'm, I'm going to spin it here on, at, in, in this last phrase, and I'll show you how. It says, also, when it was allowed to make war on the saints. So we're talking about the Antichrist, the false, the false prophet, the, the beast. When it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When were our names written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain according to Revelation? Before what? The foundation of the world. See, God loved you so much that he wrote your name down before you even came to be. See, that's why Paul could write in Romans chapter 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even those of us who weren't alive at that point in time. You are part of God's intentional plan for salvation. Again, recognizing that should cause us, prompt us, cause us, lead us to do exactly what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and say, blessed be God. Praise God. God, you are amazing. Thank you. And that's exactly where Paul goes in Ephesians, or sorry, Galatians chapter 1, verse 5. He says, to whom be the Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. See, this is the purpose of everything we've covered so far. God saved you because he loved you, and he saved you because he loved you because he wants you to glorify him. This is the end of everything for us. As you guys are, are thinking about the rest of your life, and you've got a lot in front of you, Lord willing, a lot of good things in front of you, Lord willing, Every single thing that right now you are thinking about, this is what I want to do with my life. This is where I want to go with my life. This is who I want to be with for the rest of my life. This is what my plans are. All of those things need to be done in light of this idea that every single facet that you think of needs to be able to, you need to be able to say, and I'm going to do that for the glory of God. And then I would push it one step further and I would challenge you to be able to sit down and, and defend, okay, so how is that going to be for the glory of God? Because we're not talking about the football player who runs across the goal line and points up to, to the sky and is like, yeah, I score touchdowns for the glory of God. It's got to go deeper than that. How is every single pursuit that you have an act of worship to God? How is it magnifying the Lord? Our final point together tonight is this. See your salvation, your deliverance. See your salvation as a stage for God's glory. See your salvation as a stage for God's glory. What is a stage meant to do? A platform meant to do? It's meant to elevate somebody in order to what? Help them command a room, yes? Help them get the focus of people in a room. That's why it's there for a band. That's why it's there for a speaker. That's, why it's, that's what a stage is meant to do. Nobody gets on a stage because they don't want anybody to pay attention to them, right? Right? So I want you to see your salvation, this deliverance, the fact that, that Jesus gave himself for you to deliver you from this present evil age, right? I want you to see that salvation that you have, that deliverance now as a stage for you to proclaim the glory of God. That God has set you on this platform for the rest of the world to now look at you and 
what he wants from you in response is for you to say, let me tell you about how amazing God is. Let me tell you how awesome Jesus is. Let me tell you about how much you need Jesus and how much you need to come to faith in Jesus. Let me tell you how much I love Jesus. Again, Ephesians 1, we we read it earlier, but let me go back to this. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here it is, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us with in the beloved. God saved you because of his own glory. And you're like, well, wait a minute, Pastor PJ. I thought he saved me because he loves me. He does. And those two things are not at odds with each other. God loves you, and he wants you now to be an instrument for his glory. He wants you to to magnify him because that's the greatest thing that you could ever do. You see how this is an act of love to want for the father to want you to to worship him, to glorify him. Because the other thing that Paul says in Philippians chapter two is eventually one day at the name of Jesus Christ, what every knee will bow and every what tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the what glory of the father. God loves you so much, he wants you to do that now and not when it's too late. Everybody's going to glorify God. Everybody will glorify God. In fact, Romans 9 even makes it clear to us that even those that are in hell are glorifying God through God's wrath being satisfied against their sins. Everyone will glorify God. The question is not if, but when. And God loves you enough that he sent Christ in order to lead you to the place that you would glorify him here and now rather than then and there when it's going to be too late because he loves you. So see your salvation as a platform, as a stage for God's glory. I mean, and I watched uh, Hamilton last night. It's on Disney Plus now. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, or if you have Disney Plus because you don't have kids, but we do. So we watched it. It was amazing. But there's the final scene, spoiler alert, but whatever. It's quarantine. When are you going to go see it? Go get Disney Plus and you can watch it. Um, or read Chernow's book, and then you get it. Just sing Chernow's book to yourself as you're reading it, and then you, that's Hamilton. No, it's amazing. That guy is brilliant, uh, Miranda. But in the, this final scene, Hamilton's wife, Eliza, is singing this song. And this song is called, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story? And in this final scene, she's pouring out her heart in this song, and she's talking to her now deceased husband, and she's laying out for him all of the things that she's done with her life. She's saying, look, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And she says, the greatest thing that I ever did is I I built this orphanage, and I raised hundreds of children as a result of this orphanage. And, And Alexander, is it enough, she says. Is it enough? Will people now tell my story? Did I do enough to count? Did I do enough to matter? Did I do enough to make an impact? And guys, that's such a tragic song because it gets it so backwards because we can never do enough to count. We can never do enough to make the impact. We can never do enough that people will always tell our story and we will always be remembered. Everyone will eventually be forgotten here. It's not about whether you've lived a life that causes people here to go, yeah, I knew that person. It's whether or not you lived a life that causes Jesus when you die and stand before him to say, yeah, I know that person. They're mine. 
And the only way you can do that is to realize his love for you, the Father's love for you. And then if you've realized that, is to turn around and glorify him with your life. Again, this whole series, guys, is going to be focused heavily on Jesus. And I hope you leave loving Jesus more after every single message. I hope you leave with your affection stirred for Christ more after every single message. There's nothing better that we can study. Nothing better that we can study this side of eternity. And as a result of our studying and learning and loving Jesus, I mean, it, it will transform our lives. Galatians 2.20, spoiler alert, uh, we'll get there. But Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, and here it is, this is our message tonight, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for that reality that you gave us Christ Jesus. We're so thankful that you gave yourself for us to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God the Father so that we would be able to, to glorify him in response through the lives that we live. God, we don't want to get that backwards. We don't want to try to do in order to please you. Christ did everything that we need. Lord, help us to respond rightly to that, appropriately to that, to repent from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, to see that we need Jesus. Not a checklist, not a to-do list, not a clean yourself up, not a, any of that, that we just need to come to Jesus in faith and put our trust in him, turn from our sins, and to believe that he is everything that we need. Father, I pray for the, the students in this room. If there's any that don't know Christ as their Savior, that this would be, even tonight, a night where salvation happens, where you save, where you redeem, where you snatch more people out of the, the present evil age that we find ourselves in. God, for your glory, I pray that you would do that. Lord, make us a group that loves Jesus. I want people to think about the bridge and think about, man, all those people that, man, they just, all I can talk about is Jesus and how much they love Jesus. That would make me happier than anything else. And you can do that through working on our lives, God. Start with me, I pray, even on that. Pray that you do with us the rest of this evening during our small group and, and, and everything else afterwards as well. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.